Welcome to Takeaways, Life Lessons Learned. I'm your host, Hayam Mizrahi, recording from MDL Group. Recognized market leaders in commercial real estate brokerage and property management in Las Vegas, Nevada. Join me as I explore my takeaways from the people who have influenced me the most. Let's get started. Hello, fans of Takeaways. Here is another NAOP Southern Nevada program recap, and this is the final one for 2022. NAOP is the Association for the Commercial Real Estate Development Industry. The October program was titled, There's a New Sheriff in Town, Breakfast with Sheriff-Elect Kevin McMahill. The program sponsor that morning was Dermody Properties. So this one was a fireside chat with Sheriff-Elect Kevin McMahill and myself. As NAOP Chapter President for 2022, I got to sit on the big stage across from Kevin and ask him all the questions. And one question that might come to mind is, what does the sheriff have to do with commercial real estate development anyway? Well, I'm not going to answer that right now. You can listen for yourself and see. But I had an absolute blast with this program. You know, Kevin was just off the campaign trail. So there's several videos out there of him that I got to watch and, and really prepare for this discussion. So you'll hear in a bit. I, I actually surprised him with a certain question that I asked, which I kind of got a kick out of. All right, I'm going to go away. You're going to hear applause. Then you'll hear the full program with me and Sheriff-elect Kevin McMahill in our fireside chat. Enjoy. Got your, I got my mic on. You got to get your mic on. Mine's on, but... What does that say? We spelled sheriff wrong. <laughs> you passed the test this morning. You passed the test. Everybody does it, though, so no big deal. <laughs> it's a hard word to spell. Two R's, two F's, which one is it? S-H-E-R. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Um, so you uh, won outright in the primary. You're not a candidate. You are sheriff-elect. You got 58% of the votes. So today we don't have to talk about politics or you're not, you don't have to do the stump or anything. We can stick to issues that are near and dear to the commercial real estate development community. Things like personal crime, property crime, violent crime, tourism, visitor safety, and the homeless problem. How's that sound? All the easy stuff, huh? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So, and just to clarify, because I get asked this question all the time, but June 14th, I won the primary election because I got nearly 60% of the vote. So thank you all for supporting me as well. And it's because it's a nonpartisan race. So it's not Republican or Democrat. The sheriff has to be for everybody. And so whenever that happens, you don't have to go to the, the general election in um, November. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Um, I'm going to talk, I'm going to ask you questions about who you are as a person. Who is Kevin? We'll talk about who you are, uh, your police resume, and then we'll get into the, the issues that we talked about. Just by way of reminder, uh, we're going to go till about nine. We're going to have Q&A, so you can ask questions of, of Sheriff-elect. For those of us in the room, there are pads and pens on the table. You write down your question, bring them over to Jalen. Jalen, stand up. Yeah, and Owen will be... <laughs> Owen will be walking around grabbing them. So if you have a question while we're talking, write it down, send it over toward the end. Do that. Everybody on Zoom, you can submit your questions in the Q&A. So, uh, Kevin, you were born in California, raised in Denver. Talk about what it was like for you as a child growing up. Actually, um, my father was a Denver fireman for 33 and a half years. And he was actually the most decorated fireman in the history of the fire department when he retired. My mom was a homemaker, and honestly, I wasn't a very good kid. <laughs> so um, I joined the United States Army two days after I graduated high school, and I went off to basic training in Alabama, and then I went to Korea for two years and came out of Korea and went to Northern California. And that's kind of how I ended up getting into Las Vegas in 1990 and getting hired was I left from a place in, in Northern California called Herlong and came down through Las Vegas and they were hiring. So I was fortunate to get hired by Metro. So you're just literally traveling through Vegas and- Yep, they were hiring like at a the billboard time or something? How did you- 
hear about them hiring? Um, actually, a good friend, my, actually my best friend's brother lived here at the time, and he told us that, the, that they were hiring, and I wanted to be a cop my whole life. So I started off as a police explorer, which is a part of the Boy Scouts of America, and started that when I was 14. Uh, your wife, Kelly, she also recently retired as Deputy Chief of the Professional Standards Division in Metro. How long was she on the force? Yeah, Kelly was there for 25 years. Um, we actually met on Graveyard in the southeast part of town. We have five children together. Um, interesting range. Uh, my oldest is, is 30. She's married to a police officer out in southwest part of town. My 24-year-old son is a cop in downtown area command. And then we had this large gap where we now have two 16-year-olds and a 15-year-old. He came, he came along a year and two days after my twins, which we had a little Irish triplet group there for a while. So there's about five or six years of my, my time having those three kids all at once. I don't even really remember. <laughs> and now I have two grandkids from my oldest daughter as well. Very nice. Uh, I understand that you are a spectacular chicken soup maker. <laughs> Who told you that? <laughs> I do love to cook. I, I, you know, what's funny is when I was a kid, my mom used to make us go to the rec center and, and take cooking classes. And she always used to say that, that um, you're starting to enter into a period of time where women don't like to cook as much. And so you're going to have to fend for yourself because you're probably not going to find a wife very quickly. So I did. I actually learned how to cook and, and uh, I love to cook. It actually is one of the things that I do almost every night for my family. I really enjoy it. Very nice. Um, let's shift to Kevin, the cop. Okay. So Dan, uh, Dan Tutlin. I couldn't be here today. He's the chair of programs committee. He wanted me to start out by asking you a question about uh, why did God invent policemen? <laughs> you heard my joke there, huh? Yeah, I always yours. So we have obviously with my father being a, a fireman, um, and you know there's a very healthy rivalry between police and fire. And so I always like to, to when I have conversation with firefighters, I always like to say, you know, why God invented police officers and. They're like, yeah, what? And I said, so firemen could have heroes too, you know? And so, <laughs> actually, I have to tell you a funny story. I went into the, uh, during the, the campaign process, you have to go into all these different groups and you're seeking their endorsement. And so the firefighters is, is a combined group of all the local, local firefighter unions. And they pride themselves on being very, very tough in, in asking you kinds of questions. And so, as I walked in there, um, you know, I tell them my father was a firefighter, and they said, well, how come you became a firefighter? Or you didn't become a firefighter? I said, well, I scored too high on the test. <laughs> <laughs> so it actually went over well, and I got their endorsement. So. <laughs> All right, so you came on the force in 1990. Yeah. Walk us through your resume at Metro, but specifically, like, the departments that you came up under. Well, I was a patrol officer for the first 12 years of my career. I really, I loved it. I, I love pushing around black and white. I love being the the real first responder, the one that was showing up when the events were still occurring. Um, Doug Gillespie at the time was the captain, he was former sheriff of ours, he was the captain at Southeast Area Command and he encouraged me to do something else so I went to the police academy and then I promoted to sergeant and I worked downtown bikes and narcotics and just about everywhere within the organization and I kept promoting up through the organization so the way it goes at Metro is sergeant, lieutenant, Captain, Deputy Chief, Assistant Sheriff, and then Under Sheriff. And those are all, um, you make Captain on your own, and then after that you have to be appointed by the Sheriff. So I've literally managed um, and led every aspect of our organization. And, um, you know, every Sheriff really works this a little bit differently as to how they decide to manage our organization, meaning that while I was Joe Lombardo's Under Sheriff for six and a half years, I managed the day-to-day -day operations of Metro. And, I just want to take just a really quick second and, and give you a kind of a, a snapshot of what that six and a half years looked like um, because people forget, um, Americans have short memories oftentimes, but I want you to think about what that six years looked like at Metro and starting off with the Bundy Cow incident that we had up in uh, towards Mesquite there where uh, the federal government was kind of um, surrounded and, and taken over and we were able to go up there and, and get away without anybody losing their life over cows. Um, very quickly followed by the assassination of our two police officers, Alan and Igor, sitting at CeCe's Pizza while they were having lunch from two individuals that were radicalized up there. Everybody knows what happened during 1 October, but what we seem to forget about 1 October is aside from the 58 people that died that day and two subsequent, we also had 422 people shot with an AR-15 round that day and 850 total people injured. 
And, you know, that's a, that's a, if you stop for just a second to think that 422 people were shot and survived being shot with an AR-15 round, it's an amazing testament to your first responder community, the doctors and the nurses that got up and came to the hospitals and did the work that they did. And um, as, as tragic as an event like that is that happened, um, I'm extremely proud of, of, of this community as a whole and the way that we responded to that um, evil act. Very quickly thereafter that, though, that wasn't enough for us, so we had to deal with, with COVID. And, you know, we all are affected by COVID in one way or another, but what people don't know is that five police officers died of COVID from Metro and one civilian member. And, you know, that's because we're, we were the only part of the criminal justice system that doesn't get a shutdown. Um, crime was still happening. Criminals were still out uh, creating victims. And so we had to chase after them and do the job that it is that you all expect us to do. And then finally, the, the, the summer of unrest after the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and people's right to protest. But um, as you know, um, Shea Michelinas got shot that night during some of the rioting that occurred. I was about 30 feet away from Shea when he got shot. Um, very difficult times in policing uh, uh, in this last six and a half years, seven years. And um, it seems that the mood hasn't, hasn't gotten all that much better for policing, which is some of the reasons why we're challenged in recruitment and a number of other areas. And so. I'm really looking forward to this. I take over, I start January 4th, and I think we're gonna be able to do some very amazing things for this community. Um, fact check any of this. You were on the ground for the Bundy standoff in 2014. I was. Uh, you managed the CC's Pizza assassination. You, um, <coughs> you're, you're undersheriff for one October, so of course you're notified when something like that happens, and you, um, I think just got done with a family event and, and dispatched and went down. You were there on the ground during that. But then the other thing I think people don't realize, what happens subsequently to an event like that for folks in leadership is you're not sleeping, basically. Or maybe you are mandated, go home, catch, catch, a, catch a nap and come back. You know, uh, the families uh, helping them reconnect with, with their loved ones, either the injured or the deceased. And uh, you mentioned you were a few feet away from Shea when he got shot also. So it's not like you're talking about these events as if they occurred. You were there, physically there, on the ground during these events. Yeah, not only that, but I was there leading Metro, um, you know, alongside Joe. And I'll tell you one of the interesting things that comes up when you have a, a, an event of the magnitude of 1 October is, you know, we have a pretty good relationship with all of our local media. So you start off with dealing with local media and then you move into the descending of the national media on our town and the voracious appetite of, of the, the media for that and then even international media. And so while we're still trying to figure out, we believe we were under attack for many hours um, because people, 22,000 people were inside of this box and they ran as far as fast as they could to get away from the, the concert field and they were showing up at all these various different properties on the strip shot. And so. If you and your wife or you and your husband were walking out of there and you saw somebody shot in the valet, you're picking up the phone and saying, hey, somebody's just been shot here at whatever location. So we were getting 911 call after 911 call of people being shot at properties all up and down the strip. So it took us probably about four and a half hours to actually figure out it wasn't a multi multiple assailant attack, but we really believed it during that first four or five hours of that event. So after all that, I mean, you did retire. You came back and, and decided to run for, for sheriff when Joe decided to run for governor. But after all that and having been retired, enjoying uh, the, um, the benefits of private sector, aren't you done? What would no. cause you to want to come back? No. <laughs> you know, I, um, I retired at the time because uh, Sheriff Lombardo had originally decided he was going to run for a third term as sheriff. And, you know, um, everybody has their opinions. I think Joe's done a remarkable job as sheriff, and there really was no more upward mobility for me. So I went to the private sector. I got a job doing correctional health care, and I flew around on the company corporate jet and had a really good life. This phone never rang at night or on the weekends, and my boss was in Alabama. I never got bothered. And then when Joe decided he was going to run for governor, um, he asked me if I'd consider running for sheriff. And, you know, first I went home and I talked to my wife and my, my high school age kids about it because... I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want my dad to be the sheriff when I was in high school. And so I wanted to have a little conversation with them about that. And, you know, they all said absolutely. And, and uh, you know, you don't, get a, you don't become rich by being the sheriff. The sheriff is uh, statutorily mandated. He makes $160,000 a year. It's not a lot of money 
but you have a lot of power. And when you have a lot of power, what I know about Metro is when we ask people to come to a meeting, when we ask people to come to the table to deal with some of the challenges that we have within our community, they never tell us no. And I have children, grandchildren, I love this community, I invested in this community for 30 years, and there's no way that I'm gonna let Las Vegas become like so many of these other cities like Seattle and Portland and San Francisco and Denver and Chicago and all these other places where homicide and homelessness and all of these other things have taken over our community. I'm not letting that happen here in Las Vegas and that's why I decided to run. I know I got chills. Apparently you guys, you guys got chills also. All right, so perfect segue, January 4th you start, that's day one. Talk, uh, educate us, uh, what are some of the major performance measures or crime stats that the sheriff focuses on overall for the community? Well, listen, we have a process that, uh, it's really every day, candidly, but on Tuesday we bring together everybody from command, captain and above, and we sit around and we talk about what the crime is. That's not to say that when a crime occurs, we don't talk about it that day. Um, but I, I can tell you this, is five out of the six years that I was the undersheriff, we went down in all part one crimes. I know how to fight crime. That's the single largest, most important thing that police officers and the sheriff have a responsibility to this community to do. But also, um, you know, one of the challenges that we have today is that most of the social service programs in our community are not, not very well funded. We, the Clark County Detention Center that I run, or will run, is, has a capacity of 4,100 inmates pre-COVID. And the Clark County Detention Center is the largest mental health facility in the state of Nevada. It's the largest addiction treatment center in the state of Nevada, and it's the largest homeless shelter in the state of Nevada. And by the way, incarceration doesn't fix mental health, homelessness, or addiction. And you know, there are some that believe that sort of completely going a hands-off approach and, and completely decriminalize homelessness is the way to go. Um, and I just don't believe that because I've seen the results of that in so many other cities. And so part of what I am going to do with the power that I have as the sheriff is to really work collaboratively with the other elected officials in the city and the county and the state because they don't all talk to each other very, very often, quite frankly. But convene on those three issues to figure out what the private sector is doing, what the public sector is doing, what are the gaps and what can we do to fill in those gaps so that we have a comprehensive strategy here in Southern Nevada to deal with all of these things. You know, there's a number of people that believe that, you know, um, leaving the homeless alone as an example is the humane thing to do. And that's the narrative that gets told all the time. But I will tell you, I've walked out in, in, in those tunnels. I've been out in homeless encampments. There is absolutely nothing humane about those individuals being out in those positions. And anybody that tells you that it is, is, is just completely wrong. Come on out when I'm the sheriff. I'll make sure you get an opportunity to see this. We have to find a better way. We have to find a better way. I believe we can do it. But that's not the answer. The answer is not to just turn it completely away from it so that they can be sleeping out in front of your businesses, setting up shop on your streets, and doing things that completely make the safety of this community questionable. We just can't do it. So we're gonna be working on all three of those things. And, and by the way, when I talk about that, one of the biggest flashpoints between police and community is when we use deadly force. In almost every circumstance that we use deadly force, you have mental health and addiction present, one or both. Um, the, the last thing I want to talk, there's a lot of things I could talk about, but we're very tied up here on time. So one of the problems after 1 October that I realized was that you have this major incident, and there's, there's so much PTSD associated with losing 58 people on your watch and being the officers that are fired upon and respond to it. But think about dispatchers and crime scene investigators that have to go out and do all of these things. Um, and, and instead of just a singular incident of trauma, I want you to think about what cumulative trauma looks like in your first responder community. I've literally been to the, the scene of hundreds of people who lost their lives to violence. Child rape, child molestation, rape, robbery, all of these horrible things that we see the underbelly of the human condition. And yet, we have a great employee assistance program, but studies show that people won't use your employee assistance program up to 75% of your employees because they're worried about rumor and innuendo. They're worried about effect on promotion and transfer. And by the way, since I've been in law enforcement, there's 13, they're all men on the wall of honor at Metro that died in the line of duty 
but we don't have a wall for people that committed suicide and we've lost more officers to suicide over that 30 years than we have to be killed in the line of duty. And so I'm creating what I call this Wellness Bureau at Metro that is gonna be focused in on taking care of the heart, mind, body, and soul of our first responders. Because I believe if we take care of them, <clears throat> thank you. I believe if we take care of our first responders in a markedly different way than we ever have, they will in turn take care of this community in a markedly different way than we ever have. And, and that's a big deal for us, I believe. It's great, you're answering, uh, answering all the questions I, I have, so this is fantastic. I told you I like to talk. I, that's wonderful. <laughs> Uh, financial crimes, including fraud, they affect businesses in Southern Nevada. Does Metro address and respond those locally, educate us on, first of all, the state of financial crimes and, and how are those handled? So, yes, we, we absolutely have a financial crime section. Um, they are overwhelming investigations, to be very candid with you. Um, you know, as one example, when I, when I talk about this, we had to create a computer forensics laboratory. So when we go out and serve a search warrant at any, for whatever crime it is, it all, all, financial crimes almost always involve computers. And think about you as an individual. Most people have a personal phone, a work phone, an iPad, a computer, you know, five or six different pieces of, of, of information contained in one of these things. And if they're used in the conjunction with the financial crime, then I have to get warrants, right, to search each one of these. I have to have people that know what to look for within it. So these crimes, the point I'm making to you is, is these crimes take a long time to investigate. Um, and in the crypto world, as an example, we see a significant amount of crime that's occurring there as well. So even getting to the point where I've educated our officers on, look, I'm, I'm gonna be candid with you, sitting in front of you today, I don't really understand the crypto world, but I have detectives that do. And we spend a significant amount of time allowing for them to get those educations but it's a continual piece of education. It's expensive. It's it's time consuming, and we don't do we don't do as good as we can on those types of investigations. But it's partly because we don't have the money to have the equipment to do it. So what do you do about that? I mean, you mentioned funding in a couple different capacities. There's this narrative around you know defunding the police. Uh, you talked about the resources that you're using that are shortage of funding on from other social services and you don't have the funding for financial crimes what what does metro do what can you do about that well the, the first thing we have to do is we have to we have to get our ranks filled back up um, at one point here in the last couple of months i was down 300 police officers budgeted unfilled positions 300 i want you to think about that for a minute that's basically the equivalent of one and a half or two of our area commands of officers and as the leader of our organization, when you're down those kinds of numbers, the single most important part of what it is that we do is when you call 911, you want us to show up. So we have to keep the Uniform Patrol Officer Division really staffed as best we possibly can because that's when people are actually losing their lives. So correspondingly, a lot of the other types of investigations, you have less detectives to do that. So job one is to get the, the, the positions filled so that we can provide a better level of service. We also have a number of um, opportunities out there um, for grants and a number of other things, but we have an individual that's also helping us um, from the outside who moved here from California that is asking to help make us the most technologically advanced police department in the country. Um, he's doing this because he moved out of California. He didn't like what he saw there. He has the means to do this. He doesn't want me to use his name. He's actually at this point. So let me give you one quick example. We have. 11 areas within our city that we identify as chronic persistent hotspots. If we, if we solved all the crime within those 11 areas, we'd be down somewhere around 70 to 80% in overall violent crime. So the idea, actually, this was a friend of yours, Dory, that came up with this to envelop these areas in a sort of technology bubble. So we already have what's called shot spotter deployed. So if I took this gun out in that area and I shot the gun off, there's acoustic microphones that triangulate that I'm sitting in this seat right now. So what this individual is doing for so us is we're buying... Let me push pause for a second. So the shot spotter technology, I know I read about it, I don't know when it was in the, in the local news. It's already in, in this, these areas? Yes. And, I mean, that's pretty remarkable. So someone shoots a gun, it triangulates them, you guys know exactly where to respond. It's fantastic. Did you guys all know about this? So right, what's, so what's most going. interesting about it, Haim, though, is, is that 
What we found was that in these areas, around 70%, when we were notified that a gunshot had gone off, 70% of those calls never were notified to 911. So it tells you the level of fear that people were living in in those neighborhoods to not even report that a gunshot went off in their neighborhood. So we go in and we get this. So now what's going on is we're taking 400 drones that are pre-positioned out in these neighborhoods on top of businesses. So when the gunshot detection technology goes off, it'll triangulate, it'll give the GPS coordinates to the local drone. The drone will be overhead within 30 seconds. We'll have a, an officer back at our real-time crime center at headquarters being able to give real-time intelligence to the responding officers as to if there's a subject down, if there's um, um, where the, where the uh, suspect is heading, what color their um, clothing is, the direction of travel that they're having. So for 30 years, all I ever did was turn the lights and siren on, went over there as fast as I could to get there. Almost all the information that you were able to get in that short period of time was wrong. We'd go around the corner, we'd find ourselves in an officer-involved shooting, and now, this for the first time in, in, in our agency history, we're gonna be able to keep more officers safe, reduce officer-involved shootings, and, and find more suspects than we ever have, quite frankly. And, and so- And keep those neighbors safe. And most importantly, yeah. right? And so that coupled with license plate reader technology and a number of other uh, technologies that are out there, um, things like DNA technology that is advancing at uh, just unbelievable rates, I believe we're going to get to a place where you can't commit a serious violent crime in our town without being caught. And to prove that to you, you know, our homicide section, one of the things we, yes, homicides are up, but I want to tell you something. When you go in and you look at cities like Chicago that have 25 to 30 percent solve rates on their homicides, Metro uh, last year, I believe, closed it out at either 93 or 96 percent. I can't remember which. If you commit a homicide in Las Vegas, you're going to get caught. That is the single most deterrent effect to committing homicides in any community. Once the police lose the faith of their leaders, you start to see things like Chicago. You start to see where 50, 60, 70 people are being shot and killed in your community every single weekend. That's not our community, and that's not gonna happen in our community. We have to make sure that we continue to be as effective as we can and keep this community safe. I got a big question. Yes, please, round of applause. Yeah, big, big question, then we'll likely uh, go, go to Q&A. I see some uh, questions making it over to, to Owen and J Jalen. So uh, the NAOP August program was on the Las Vegas Strip right here. Uh, we're seeing visit, uh, record visitation numbers, current development uh, is expected to be robust. Uh, we've got a wonderful future ahead of us. Ultimately, our visitors fuel much of our taxes and development. Yet on October 6th, there was an attacker uh, that stabbed eight people on the strip, wounding six, killing two victims. You mentioned media earlier, local media, national media, international media. The image is that you can be walking on the, down the strip and be murdered at 11.40 a.m. Uh, you mentioned reports of businesses moving out of Seattle, Portland, Los Angeles because of a rise in crime uh, and quality of life issues, also uh, including homelessness. So. Talk on visitor safety, talk on a little bit deeper about how we prevent Las Vegas from being affected by the same. Yeah, that's a great question. And obviously, um, you know, we're, we're always troubled when those types of uh, things get published nationally because we know that if we don't have visitors, we can't sustain our city. We understand that very well, which is part of the reason why we created the Tourist Safety Division at Metro that houses and encompasses the Convention Center Area Command, which is responsible for the Strip, as well as the the downtown area command, which is responsible for the Fremont Street area. You know, I, I really think that one of the things that, that people don't understand is that regardless of the number that you believe that we have as visitors, whether it's 40 million or 48 million, um, whatever it is, we don't, we don't actually get staffed at Metro for the visitors that we have. There's a metric that we keep out there that's about two officers per 1,000 permanent residents. So the, the, the tourism volume in our city is not accounted for in the staffing of the police department. Um, you know, there's been a couple of very successful events out here also that um, I think is a good indicator to me as a sheriff as to potentially some of the things that is that I want to do. So we had the, the NFL draft here um, recently. Went off without a hitch, right? We had uh, hundreds of thousands of people that come here for a multiple day event 
And by the way, we have a lot of these coming up, right? We have F1, we have the Super Bowl. We see significant increases in human trafficking around both of those kinds of events, sex trafficking. So we have a responsibility to do all of this. And so I'm looking at a variety of different deployment models that we could have up there on the strip. Um, obviously, I have to work with the city and the county um, around all of these issues. I intend to do that very early on as we get in there. But what was interesting to me about the NFL draft as an example was that we had this sort of public-private partnership between private security and the police department. And so one of the areas up on Las Vegas Boulevard that's been the most problematic for us is those bridges that we built, the pedestrian bridges where people just stop and do whatever the heck it is that they want. So if, if we do make them back so that this, the county actually owns them and their private walks, then we can move people off of there. But mm. what if we were to hire, instead of police officers to do that, what if we were actually to hire security officers that could maintain the thoroughfares and continue to make people go and in conjunction and partnership with the police? I'm a big fan of, of uh, police-private-public partnerships, and I think they work. I've seen them work over and over again. And so I, I'm, what I'm, I guess what I'm saying to you is I'm, I'm wide open to other alternatives because there's just no way that they're ever going to be able to fund the police department in a way that would, would allow us to have what it is that we need up there on the Strip with over 300,000 people changing in and out daily. So we, we have a lot, lot of work to do there. Um, they do a good job up there for the most part. But we can't have people being stabbed, and, and you know, luckily, private security up there helped us get them into custody right away. But we still lost life that day. Yeah. You know, it's interesting is an event like that happens, and that's that's the perception out there. And then all the other things. I'm glad you mentioned it. Like all the things you don't get credit for because they went off without a hitch, or Metro doesn't get credit for. Oh, and how are we looking? Look at you. Look, you got a stack of papers over there. Come grab this one right here, Owen. Did anybody put their name on one of those, in case it's a tough question? We're, we're going to keep them anonymous for the most part. But. So, Sheriff, uh, one question that came up. Um, going into a legislative year, do you and, and Metro have some priorities that you're going to be looking out for in the legislature and with whomever our governor might be? And um, you know, the, the questioner asked, will you be on offense or defense in the legislature this year? Yeah, well, that's a simple one. Offense, I would say to you for sure. Um, Does he seem like a defensive guy? <laughs> the, um, I, I'm going to be very honest with you. This is one of the areas that has me very concerned. Um, we've had a longtime lobbyist at Metro um, who is retiring at the same time as the sheriff. Um, so I, I have a new lobbyist that's going in there that has no legislative experience. Um, have a lot of faith in her. She'll do a great job. Um, but let's also be honest. In the last legislative session, there were a number of bills that were passed that made it very difficult for law enforcement to do their job. You know, the felony threshold for um, theft crimes went up to $1,200. Uh, as recently as yesterday, I was sent some information from a, a local uh, chain company that said that the, the theft that's occurring within their... I don't have permission to share the, the name of them, so I'm not going to, but... They told me that the, the theft in their industry right now here in Southern Nevada is the worst in the country because people are just walking in and taking things out. And so, you know, there's a lot of unintended consequences for some of these laws that are passed. And I don't believe anybody in the legislature is really evil that wants to, to, to you know, make our community unsafe. I think it's my responsibility as a sheriff, however, to make it so that people clearly understand what it is when we have these laws that are passed and how they're really going to affect our community. You know, there was some consideration for taking home invasions and making them a, even a lesser offense. And, you know, when you, when you have your, your door kicked into your home and you're being held at gunpoint and robbed, I can promise you, you feel like a victim. And, and we have to make sure that we do a much better job as an organization. And, and really, candidly, I have to talk to, to groups like you all because I need your help in this. I need groups like NAOP and so many others to talk to your elected officials as we move forward to help us keep this community safe because that whole, there's still some thought from a number of people talking about defund the police. Um, they're not saying it out loud anymore, but they still have this sort of idea that that's the, the smart thing to do. Um, I can tell you that I agree that we need to fund a lot of the other things as I've already mentioned as homelessness, mental health and addiction. But it's not, the answer is not to make your community less safe by defunding your police. And so absolutely on the offense and um, those priorities are really gonna be focused in on how do we tighten up some of, those, some of those laws so that we can move forward and keep our community better.
So, Sheriff, you uh, spoke a little bit about your wellness initiative, and um, theoretically there's a, a stigma, and you even touched on this, about receiving help if you've been an officer who's been in a traumatic situation. What do you see as a way that you can overcome that stigma within the organization and, and allow people to get help without having a stigma associated with it? You know, one of the things I learned in leadership a, lot, a long time ago is that when you want to change culture, um, it's probably the single most important thing that you need to do when you're actually trying to affect change. You can have all the policy, procedure, training, tactics, leadership, supervision in the world, but if the culture trumps, the culture will trump all of that all of the time. They'll just figure they'll, they're going to outwit, outplay, and outlast you, right? And so sometimes you just have to break the culture right over your knee, um, candidly. Um, but, but also how you do that oftentimes is, um, in our profession, we don't really talk about this kind of stuff. It's always been, there's a stigma around it. There's a taboo around it. You know, I lost my own brother a number of years ago to suicide. Um, I'm no stranger to this. And I recognize that one, one of the things as a leader does is they lead by example. And so I intend once, I don't, I'm not an expert on what wellness is going to look like yet. It's happening all over the country. People are trying to figure this stuff out. But I know how to, to assemble teams of leaders to bring them together, to lead them, to empower them, to motivate them, to inspire them, to achieve something that we will all benefit from as first responders. And I'm going to be the first one to, to volunteer to do that. You know, there's therapies out there called um, EMDR, which is a PTSD treatment. It has to do with eye movement and brain mapping and all kinds of things. That doesn't mean that you can't continue on as a police officer, but we have a responsibility to take care of them differently than we ever have and that's going to start on day one at metro and and uh, look the truth is we know that not everybody's going to embrace that um that part of it but as you continue to sort of grind through it um i have a lot of followers at metro i have a lot of people that believe in me had overwhelming endorsement of the women men and women of metro i really believe this is going to be something we're going to be able to accomplish in a very very short period of time well, the room applauded you at that initiative, so I think we as NAOP applaud you for doing that, so our officers are safe and healthy as well. So um, I'm, I'm going to rephrase this question just a little bit, but um, throughout the commercial and real estate industry, we've heard of, um, as inflation has kind of run rampant, we've heard of crimes relating to stealing lumber, copper being stolen. How big of a problem is that and as far as Metro tracks and, and what do you see as either the pervasiveness of that issue and or if there's a way to solve it within our community? So I would say that from folks within the construction industry, I probably got um, talked to about that more than just about anything on the campaign trail. And so we used to have what we call a construction theft um, detail and that was um, officers that were specifically trained in uh, the thefts that were occurring at job sites of not only tools but equipment, uh, copper theft, a number of those kinds of things. So I gave them my commitment that I was going to reinstitute that. There's also a lot of technology around, around that that we can use to sort of target harden some of this stuff and make it so that, I mean, we're talking to a number of those individuals, we're talking about millions of dollars in some of these cases that they were losing in, in um, materials at some of their larger construction uh, locations. Uh, that uh, coupled with this wrap um, program or the SNORCA program, which is a Southern, uh, Southern Nevada organized retail theft group. Um, so those two things are going to work hand in hand. Uh, I'm going to reinstate both of those so that we can focus in on those, those individuals that are going out to these, these locations that are retail theft. They're organized crime rings. Um, they're going out and they're stealing millions of dollars. So the two of them have a natural crossover, I think, within the Theft Crimes Bureau. So focused in on that construction theft as well as the retail theft, we're going to figure out how to hybridize that and hopefully engage a number of other um, law enforcement organizations in creating a task force around that. Also, if anyone else has burning questions they would like to bring up, please bring them up here. Um, so our questioner here, um, wants to know if you can confirm that there are 540 active gangs in Clark County, and I guess broadening that, how big of a problem is gang activity in Southern Nevada, and, and what do you see as, as the current status of that, and, and how do we solve some of those challenges? So, um, as I mentioned, I'm not currently at Metro, so I don't know the number right off the top of my head for gangs. It sounds about right. Um, you know, gang activity is really a very interesting piece of this. If, if uh, you know, 
way, way back when I started, it was, you had a, a red bandana or a blue bandana, and that was, you were a crip or a blood, right? Um, there were a few other Hispanic gangs at the time, 18th Street, 28th Street, White Fence, a number of others, and they had their own colors as well. And it was really about turf. If this is my neighborhood, this is where we sell drugs, and, and if you crossed over into that turf, you knew there was going to be a shooting. Um, that has really changed the game a lot over the years. Um, we started to see the hybridization of gangs where individuals that may have been a certain set would then sort of move in and now all of a sudden you find them actually working together. And it was all about the dollar. It was out about the, the sale of drugs. And then very quickly it got even further um, mixed up in the sense that it was really about the sex trade. And, you know, prostitution in Las Vegas isn't really about sex anymore. Prostitution in Las Vegas is about sex trafficking, human trafficking, and it's about um, these, these women that go in and that they're, they're put out by the pimps and they get a, a mark or a target at, at a location and it's the watch, it's the gambling, it's whatever. Before you know it, they're slipping something in the drink, they get you up to the room, you pass out, you wake up, and you have nothing left. But here's the challenge with that, that everybody says, well, you know, we catch these people almost every time. The surveillance in the casinos is fantastic. We catch them all the time. But why do you think we don't get very often prosecutions on these cases? Why? Because, because their wife back in Peoria doesn't, doesn't want the husband to know that he got trick rolled out in, in Las Vegas. And, and uh, you're going back to Las Vegas for what? Right? So no charges filed, no thanks. And we all laugh about it, but that's the God's honest truth. It, it just, the, these men don't want to go back and expose to their wives and their families that they were a victim of a trick roll in Las Vegas. And so I think there's some things legislatively that we can do around this. I think there's some, some things that, um, from a prosecution perspective, that we can actually make the state the victim instead of the individual the victim. And so there's a lot of conversation going on around uh, all of this stuff as we move forward. But... We have, a, we have a lot of work to do when it comes to that. So you spoke a little bit about homelessness, and I'm just going to read this person's question. So while homeless individuals who commit crimes need to be held accountable, it is nevertheless not criminal to be homeless. Would an expansion of low-barrier shelters based on a version of the downtown homeless courtyard be helpful as an alternative to arresting people for low-level crimes like loitering? Thank you for your service. Yeah, no, say. thank you. Um, so I'm actually already working on this um, November, I think it's November 30th. I'm traveling with uh, uh, Councilman Knudsen, and I'm not exactly sure who else is coming. I think uh, Commissioner Naft is coming. We're going down to Phoenix to look at a very successful model that's down there. The challenge that we have that the courtyard um, that this individual mentions, if you go down to Maine and Owens, you'll, you'll have a very good idea of that. That was actually based off the San Antonio model that Metro helped develop. The city's done a great job of that. We don't have the same kind of uh, location within the county for the same thing. And so there's always a little bit of turf battle about who's taken in and what homeless. And uh, whoever asked that question, I agree with you, homelessness in and of itself is not criminal. But all I'm simply saying around that, and I don't think we should make it criminal, what I'm saying is, is the behavior of the homeless is something that still has to be looked at by law enforcement so that we don't completely lose control of our businesses and our residential areas where people can just, you know, I don't know if I was in California not too long ago, they just have RVs that are parked in front of people's homes and there's nothing the police can do about it. I don't think that's the answer either. And so, yes, the expansion of that, um, the city and the county are both very interested in this. Um, the, the lack of housing is a critical, critical issue that we have here. And so, again, all of us coming together to work on these types of issues, identify the gaps, determine where we need the funds for it, and um, I think we'll have an opportunity to collectively work together and move forward. Here's a great um, kind of personal question. As a, uh, as a leader in our community and in law enforcement, how do you personally keep yourself centered and cultivate happiness for yourself? <sighs> That's a, that is a, that's a great, good question. You know, um, well, first off, I, I'm, I'm a huge family man. Um, I, my daughters play competitive uh, soccer. My son plays um, hockey. Um, brings me a lot of joy to go to do that kind of stuff with them. 
Um, I used to work out a lot. I, I don't do that as much as I need to. That's one of my sort of New Year's resolutions this year that I'd like to get back in the gym. You know, when you start campaigning, if you're doing it right, you're kind of going from 7 in the morning until about 8 or 9 at night. And I kind of got out of the habit, and I want to get back into that. Um, but listen, um, I'm also very fortunate to have a wife that worked in this job. Um, she keeps me on my toes. She knows what's going on. She is a good read of me of when I need to take a break and insisting upon me taking a break. I, I, um, it's a strange thing to say, but I like to work under stress. I know that sounds very strange, but I, I feel like I have this ability to really um, operate well under levels of high stress. And I don't know if that's just because of what I did for so long, but I don't feel it the same way a lot of people do. Um, but yeah, uh, it's a, it's a, self-care is also as important. And you know, when I talk about that, when you talk about the wellness care, the reason I said I was gonna volunteer first is because you could have the sheriff that tells you, do this, do this, do this all day long, but if the sheriff's not taking care of themselves as well, then nobody's gonna believe what it is that you're saying to them. And so uh, that's part of my commitment as we get this up and running is to figure out ways to take care of myself even better and not realize that I have to work 19-hour days and trust the people that I put into positions of leadership to do some of this kind of work as well. We have exhausted our, uh, our questions, so I don't know if anyone else in the audience has any no, we're questions. Gonna, we're going to shut it down. I'll ask a final question, and then we'll land the plane on this one. Um, you shared a lot today. Thank you for being here also before we, we leave. On behalf of NAP, thank you for your dedicated service to our community, for what you've done and what you're going to do. But NAP Southern Nevada, as we, we talked about, 650 members strong. We're comprised of commercial real estate developers and affiliated industries, you know, architects, brokers, contractors, lenders, engineers, uh, commercial uh, property service providers. You, you, I'm going to ask you, like, what would you ask of us? You mentioned uh, getting um, talk to your elected officials. What else would you ask of us, or what would you want? What do you want us to know before we leave here today? Well, I think there's there's a couple of simple things. One is I intend to be very open, transparent, and accountable to all of you. Um, you all provide a wonderful service for our community, and and when I take office, I also want you to hold me accountable. Um, you know, one of the things that I've noticed in the campaign trail is that people enter into getting um, elected already with the mindset that they're going to get reelected in four years. I don't have any mindset. I look at this in the sense that I have a lot to accomplish in four years, and what I choose to do in four years is what I choose to do. But in the meantime, I want you to help hold me accountable to what it is that I've been talking about today. Um, as, invite me back, and, and let's have another conversation about what we've accomplished, why we haven't accomplished it, and, and let's, let's really try to move this community collectively forward because... It's all of our home, right? You all have extremely successful businesses here. I owe it to you to make sure that we do that. The other thing I would say to you is, is you know, one of the, the challenges that we have is, um, you know, this is an educated group of individuals. But, you know, when we go into these elections, we have people that, that and I've, listen, I know this for a fact because I've done this. You get down ballot in the election. After you get past governor and senator and, and congressperson, you might, most of the time, you know, there's roughly around 20% of the people that vote for sheriff that never finish voting for sheriff because it's one of the last boxes on the, on the election. So when we get down to judges, there's so many of them, we don't even know who, to, who, who, who is, right? I do because I've been out on the campaign trail with all of them. But do your diligence. Take a look at who these individuals are. If they align with your values, whatever your values are, I don't care. It's not, I'm not telling you how to vote. But go in and be a very educated voter about what it is that you want for the future of our state and our county and our city because it's that important. Um, you know, so many people don't vote year over year over year and you don't have a voice if you don't vote. And I would just really encourage you to encourage everybody you know to educate yourself about those judges because you know, it's one thing, we could have the greatest sheriff in the world we could have the greatest sheriff in the world, one that every one of you was extremely proud of. But if on the back end of the criminal justice system, all we're doing is not prosecuting and letting people out of jail over and over and over again, it's highly ineffective. 
We have 350 people sitting in the Clark County Detention Center right now charged with the crime of murder that have been waiting to go to trial. How long do you think the longest person has been waiting to go to trial? Any guesses? Seven years. Seven years. I want you to think about if that was your family member. Where's your sense of justice, your sense of closure? What if the person that's accused of it is actually innocent? We have to do a better job of making sure that we're electing judges that are actually taking cases, trying cases, and getting through the system and the backlogs that we have. This is too important for us as we move forward. And, and I just want to be clear, I didn't tell you who to vote for. I just said educate yourself and make it very clear what it is that you believe is your value system that whoever you vote for in those judges' races matches whatever it is that you believe. Because this is a problem for me and for my organization as we move forward. And I would just say to, to Haim and, and Nayop and, and all of you, thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed it, and uh, I look forward to coming back and chatting with you next year. Let's give him a round of applause. I'm going to go up there and close out the show, but thank you for being here. And stick around. We're going to take a photo after. All right. So thank you all for being here. How was, uh, how was that? Was that good, informational? That was good. I want to thank Dermody Properties again for being our breakfast sponsor. One final announcement, the bus tour, Thursday, November 9th. Jen wants you there. And what's that? November 10th. 10th, excuse me. November 10th, thank you. I'm getting fact-checking all day today. Thank you. November 10th, bus tour. And on a personal note, this is my final NAOP breakfast. It has been my absolute privilege. Thank you all. Have a great day. Thank you for listening. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Takeaways podcast is about sharing and paying it forward. If you like this show, please make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. It really goes a long way. And if you really like this show, please share takeaways with a friend. Thank you and tune in next time.